Right, still, I'm still trudging through Corey's uh, new intros. I'll have those uh, edited and whipped into shape this week. He's a good one-take guy, but I got to add all the effects and all that jazz. Are you even listening to me, or are you? you... No, I, I was waiting for us to start, and okay. so I was checking Tinder. Yeah, and uh, you, this... you're on Tinder. I swear to God, yes. Isn't, isn't Tinder like uh, like some kind of porn hookup thing? Like... Hey, you know what? If it's a hookup site, I wish because <laughs> you know what? If it's a hookup site, there's one guy not hooking up on Tinder, okay. and you're looking at him. So, okay, this one girl. Named Tanya. How does Tinder differ from uh, like Match.com? Well, Tinder is just an, it's just an app on your phone. Right. Match, although it has an app, is primarily web based. Okay. And so Tinder is uh, you, all you see. Like here, I'm showing away this picture. Here's uh-huh. this woman. Her name is Tanya. She's 38. Now I don't know why she swiped right on me because she lives 2,550 miles away. She is she goes to Helsinki Summer University. Why is she texting? Uh, why is she uh, swiping right for me? Anyway, so all you do is swipe right or left. If you swipe right, it means that you like the girl. If you swipe left, that means you don't like the girl. Uh, Conversely, if they swipe right and I swipe right, I that see. means we're a match. I and see. so Tinder will then allow us to email each other. I if see. one of us swipes right to say yes, but one of us swipes Ooh. left to say no, we cannot then communicate. I you have to see. both swipe right. What if you swipe up? Oh, well, nothing happens. Well, you can, um, you can read their profile. What if you swipe down? You can read their profile. What okay. Anyway, what if you swipe uh, both diagonally? left and right at the same time? Right. Unmatched Tanya. You're, you're 2,550 <laughs> miles away. Sir, what the hell, man? Stop that. Anyway. All right. If we're doing the show, I, I yeah. will stop. Uh, I will stop. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah. Well, anyway. Um, so, yeah. I'll get the Corey stuff done, uh, hopefully, for the next show. Uh, probably the show after the next. Uh, did you say that last week? Yeah, I did. But it's, it's been busy. I did a did, did, did Colcoa, and then I had a film week, and it's... It's you know it gets manic. By by, by the time I had a really good film week with Tim though we uh, we we were we maybe the only two people in America who gave uh, who were were sympathetic to uh, Mother's Day the Gary the Gary Marshall film. What? Look, it's a Gary Marshall film. What were look the last two films that he made were Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve. What what was anyone seriously thinking? Did you think that suddenly you'd walk into Mother's Day and it would be like oh, oh my gosh it's like it's like Godfather two. It's 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 freaking Mother's Day. It's I, got Julia Roberts and uh, Jennifer Aniston and Kate Hudson and and Jason Sudeikis, and it is what it is. It's a Gary Marshall movie. But I, I think even by the the low bar currently set by Gary Marshall movies, this one does not even eclipse that. It's better than Valentine's Day, and it's way better than New Year's Eve. Really? Yes. So look, of, of all the, the minor holiday movies he's done, this is the best yeah, one. Look, the actors are having fun. I think what everyone resents is the fact that Gary Marshall is an 81-year-old man who can look at this incredibly screwed-up world and still, after all these years, see it through these rose-colored, uh, Love American-style glasses. And he does. He, he, he sees, the, I mean, he sees, you know, and Tim made the really good point. It's not like he doesn't know what's going on. You know, there, there's like homophobia and, and war death and there's, you know, all of the things uh, that, that are sort of tearing this, the world apart politically and socially and everything else. He deals with them in this movie, but at the end of the day, he just says, but you know what? Love conquers all and can't we all just love each other? And it's just, just him with his, his, his innate sweetness. Do you realize he has written hundreds of the best television ever aired? Gary Marshall? At, at a time, Going back into the 50s. Yes, at a time when you can write stories. See, 
I don't think culturally we can accept stories like what he writes anymore. I mean, odd Because we're all too bitter and angry and we think it's we know true. everything. And that's the thing. People are, are, are ripping him because he's not bitter and angry enough. I'm kind of glad. I, I think it's wonderful. I, he still is who he is. He's true to who he is. I mean, hundreds of episodes of Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days and The Odd Couple and Dick Van Dyke Show and on and on and on and on. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He's, he's a machine. I have nothing but love and respect for Gary Marshall. Seriously. Who are you? I, I admire the guy. I so I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to I'm not going to rip on Mother's Day. I saw we saw um, uh, Keanu as well. Talked about that. Oh, is it good? You know what? It's like a great big giant overextended uh, Key and Peele sketch, but it's like a transitional thing for them. Um, Peele basically co-wrote it. Key didn't have any hand in writing it, but they're doing their shtick. They're doing the thing that they do. You know, all that kind of subversive racial stereotype, turning it on, turning it on its head stuff. Um, it's very funny. But there are a lot of just them doing their banter, doing the, the, the talking head stuff that they do and that they do so well. But, I, yeah, it's, parts of it are just insanely funny. They're very, very funny. Now, I did not get a... Uh, There's a whole uh, George Michael subplot that's really outrageous. I cool. did not get an invite to that. Did you get an invite to that or did you have to chase after it? Uh, no, well, you, you saw I it had, on Film Week. I saw it for Film Week, but... Uh, did Film Week hook you up with the, with the publicist and everything? Because there, I, there, there was you know, no all-media invite sent out for that. I'm trying to... Think, I think mm. I did have to chase after it. Yes. I did. Yes, I did. I, now that I recall. Yes, I, I did have so. to chase after it. Yes. Yep. yep. They did not push it, which is weird, but anyway. All right. Well, you know what? We had promised everybody a Vox Box last week. Why don't we? Let's do it. Well, really? Now. Right now. Top of the show. This is Kevin Mower here. Just following up on the whole discussion about 4K TVs, why do you think retailers have been pushing 4K TVs for so long now? It really feels like it's been a couple of years that it's been sort of the, the hot item when it comes to electronics. And yet, as you say, there's only one Blu-ray player out there that outputs 4K. I think there's a Roku, Roku 4, something like that that outputs 4k the the playstation 4 the xbox one neither of them do um i don't even know what else can do 4k at, at this point so what what sense does that really make um just want to see if i can get your input on that thanks a lot thank you kevin really good question uh mark don't you feel like it um that it, that it was largely jumping ship from the waning 3D market to 4K, that that was a way to somehow try to restore demand that was waning a little bit? Well, 3D uh, Blu-ray never got any traction. Right. So if you're going to have to, you know, if you if the studios want to make any more money, right, on it, squeeze any more blood out of, yeah. the, out of the packaged media stone, they've got to come up with something, and this is really it. I mean, if, if you take a look at some of the films that have, been, that have come out on Blu-ray, uh, 4K, and will come out on 4K, they're starting to get a little bit better with it. I mean, you've got Mad, you know, Fury Road is out now, and X-Men is out now. Life of Pi is probably good in 4K. Uh, Deadpool's coming out in 4K. Yeah. You know, uh, so there's, there's good stuff coming out. But again, I, I just think that Based on the failure of, you know, because some of these home, you know, what, what was the uh, competing uh, Blu-ray uh, um, HD DVD? Yeah. From HD DVD all the way to 3D yeah. Blu-ray, there are all these, like, packaged media home theater failures. Yeah. That people start to get a little bit 
worried oh. that if they upgrade everything, it's going to be it for naught. It's, well, there's also, if you remember in the early days of HDTV, there was no HDMI. People were using, there, there, there were like three or four different ways of hooking your TV up. And uh, there was sort of no standardized interface. The, the resolution on the TV was the same, but how you got information into the television was through all kinds of weird converters and, and computer cables. And it, got, it was very, very strange. And uh, that took a while to standardize. And the same problem has happened here. All of these 4K TVs that were the first out, they all featured uh, HDCP, which is a copy protection standard. They featured HDCP 1.4. So a lot of people who bought uh, early 4K televisions are going to have a problem, and they're not going to know why. And, it's gonna, and, and I'm waiting for this to, to kind of blow up. They're going to be getting um, new 4K Blu-rays. I think there's actually a second Blu-ray player now. Didn't Sony finally come out with their 4K K player, I think? Now there's a Samsung well, there's and a Sony. A, there's a Samsung, there's a couple of Panasonics, and there is a Sony. Yeah, this, this, the Samsung was the first one out, and I think uh, now we've had some others catch up. And obviously, you know, through the end of the year and early next year, it's it's going to continue to blow up. Everybody's going to get them out. Oppo's going to, you know, get theirs out by the end of the year and probably blow everybody else away. But uh, if you've got, like, a, a brand spanking new 4K player and a brand new disc and you plop that in and you connect that player and the disc that are expecting a, an HDCP 2.2 standard and the television is 1.4, they're not going to talk to each other. You've got to go get a converter. And there's a, there's a converter out there that's not it's not outrageously expensive. It's the Blackbird uh, 4K Pro HDCP converter. It goes from 2.2 to 1.4, and it you know it'll it'll take care of that. But th- that 2.2 1.4 HDCP thing, nobody's talking about that, and they need to. And then there's HDMI uh, 2.0, which if you really you know you have to be using the HDMI 2, uh, 2.0 cables. You got to have a receiver that is HDMI 2.0 compliant. There's a whole there's a whole world of compatibility issues that have to be ironed out. And I'm afraid that they've all gotten so quickly, they've jumped ship so quickly before all this is ready for prime time, that um, a lot of people are going to be afraid of 4K. They're going to be like, hey, man, this isn't plug and play. I just, I just want to take a TV and plug it in and watch, watch my Blu-ray movie or whatever on my Roku or my Apple TV. And it's not that easy yet. It's a, there's, a bit of a, there's a bit of a thing that has to happen. And it, it, if it takes too long to shake that out, it's, no one's going to want to adopt this. But the thing, I think people are waiting to see, you know, I'm not going to be the first one to jump in. I'll let other people jump in. And then when it gets traction, then I'll jump in. The danger yeah. is that everybody's saying that. So everybody's yeah. waiting for, for the next person to jump in. So nobody's jumping in. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a, sure, it's a money move. And for a lot of stuff that is on 4K looks good. Uh, some of it, like uh, The Revenant, looks amazing. But you need a giant TV to really see the difference, and you've got to be sitting pretty close to that TV. And um, I'm, I'm not sure the market is as big as they think it is, and I'm not sure it's going to justify the cost long term. I think uh, not, not, not when you've got – okay. I think 4K is, it may wind up being a, a – I think everyone's going to wind up with a 4K TV, but I'm not sure that everyone's going to adopt – is really going to get on board 4K Blu-ray. I think that's always going to be a specialty high-end uh, disc. And uh, I think 4K may wind up being just a streaming format. Which I think that, may, that might be where it lives, off of Roku and Apple TV and iTunes and all look, that. Look, you've got you know, Joy, the David O. Russell film Joy with Jennifer Lawrence. Yep, that's which coming we're out, talking about today. That's coming out on 4K? 
who is going to – who – do you really think that the person who watches Joy it's is the funny. person who's going to want to upgrade their TV, their, their Blu-ray player, their receiver? It's funny you mention that because they sent it to us on Blu-ray and not on 4K. And literally within just the past uh, few hours, I actually sent an email off saying, would you be so kind as to send us the 4K? Because we'd really like to see how Jennifer Lawrence looks in 4K. It's ridiculous. Yeah, well. And a bunch of crap like Risen. Yeah. You know, and, and, and older, older films too, which may not really benefit that much, even – even older slash modern films like Independence Day from '96 or Ghostbusters yeah. from uh, 1984, I mean, how much are they going to really well, benefit from 4K? The thing is, have those films been remastered in 4K? When they were remastered, when they were digitally remastered for specifically for Blu-ray, did they do 2K or did they do 4K? Because if they did 2K, then you're already on uh, on Blu-ray, pretty much getting most of what you need. If they're then popping it to 4K. I'm wondering where where's the extra resolution there, or did they go back and do a 4K remaster? Because it's expensive to do that. You have to just sort of justify it. And, and, and at, at what point does it not matter what a 1984 film looks like in 4K versus 2K? I don't know. I and mean, really. Again, again, and the issue, as our good friend Sean often points out, is it's not about more pixels. It's about better pixels. You know, and people miss that as well, is that you know, it, it would be better to have an, uh, a, a 1080p Resolution a 2K television, traditional uh, HDTV, uh, with that resolution, if the pixels had higher, you know, bit rate and or, or bit depth, color color depth. If they were, you know, if you had like 16 bit pixels, um, it would look better to the average eye than would a higher resolution with worse pixels. You Too know? complicated. All, all people, I know. All, it gets very technical. All they're hoping for is the idea that 4K must be twice as good as 2K. Yeah, exactly. Because, because 2 times 2 is 4. Well, they're not even it. Who knows? We'll see. Well, anyway, let's talk about a few movies. Um, so we have a blue... We're going to go through some, uh, some classic films here. And uh, there's some really interesting stuff this week, actually. We got a, we got a lot of Eastwood-ish stuff going on. And the first one is the Clint Eastwood-directed American Sniper. There he is at, what, 83 or whatever it is he is now? And He's the man. The most successful film of his entire career. Either as an actor or uh, or a director. Really, it wasn't uh, wasn't the, uh, the the thing with the war hero guy? The thing American with... Sniper. Oh, that, that's right. That's what that's what I'm talking about. This no, because is... I'm I'm looking at these two older ones, which we'll yeah. talk about. in a no, second. No, no. Yeah. Uh, well, you know is... why? Because because it it uh, people were people in, in the flyover states. Yeah. were in the mood for this movie. And uh, this is, of course, this has already been out on Blu-ray, but this is different. This is the Chris Kyle commemorative edition. Oh, that's uh, hard. that's such pandering. That's just <laughs> terrible. So here's the, here's the thing: is this worth double dipping for? Only if you are just mad for the cult of Chris Kyle. I love this movie. I really do. I, I I did not see it as the politicized thing that a lot of other people saw. To me, this is a movie about a guy torn between two families: the band of brothers and his family at home. And I I think that's a universal military struggle. So I found that emotionally very compelling. And I think Bradley Cooper is tremendous. Um, uh, but it you know uh, ultimately it did become a political football because you know Fox News especially Sean Hannity kind of picked up the movie and waved it like a flag and then you know the reaction to the counter reaction and the movie wound up getting kind of sucked down this rabbit hole of, of uh, controversy that it really didn't deserve but that being said if you are big on Chris Kyle boy you'll be big on this uh, one dollar of your purchase of this will be donated to the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation just did you, I want you to know that. I'm just saying there's yeah. just something really, really just yeah. icky about that. Except in certain states. Well, that's my phone. Oh, well, by all means, go. And then uh, also included is a... That phone never rings. That phone? Never that's rings. That's your home phone, right? Yes. 
your actual like non-cell home phone. Well, I have a uh, I have a VoIP phone. Yes. So anybody I don't As want, I do. anybody I don't want to have my cell phone. Yeah. I just give them that phone and then ignore oh, it. Oh, like the swipe right people. Exactly. Yeah, gotcha. Sweet. Okay. So anyway, there's a commemorative bonus disc on here with uh, a whole, with three documentaries on it that Bradley Cooper actually was uh, went back and narrates. And you know, one is about Navy SEALs, another one is all about the actual Chris Kyle, and the last one is uh, just sort of a general tribute to veterans. All of this is thrown together, uh, and of course, there's you know stuff that was previously on the uh, uh, on the previous disc and. Uh, all of this is really just uh, to, you know, get get more juice out of this movie, I guess. Anyway, it's not a different cut. It's the same film. It's just got a few more things on it and uh, on that second disc. And uh, and that's basically it. So continuing our, our Clint Fest, Mark, what else do we have? We have uh, True Crime. Yeah. True Crime from 1999. This is, uh, you know, this is okay Clint. This is not uh, total kick-ass Clint. And it's not uh, lame Clint. It's somewhere in the middle. He plays a, a journalist who uh, has to uh, find out who really killed this uh, San Quentin death row prisoner who's a slave to die at midnight. And it's got a good cast. Uh, James Woods, Dan Verona, who you might remember from Heat. Uh, Dennis Leary is in this. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's got, a, it's got a, you know, ticking clock kind of thriller edge thing, which I kind of liked. Um, it's, there's kind of a moral drama there, too, about the death penalty, which I kind of liked. So, you know, it's, a, uh, it's kind of a puzzle picture whodunit thing that I thought was pretty good. You know, it's actually, it's very, it's middling Clint, but, um, you know, I just hey, love middling, him. Middling okay. Clint, you know what, it's not a bad film. I, it's not I, a bad film. Yeah. Now, this one, City Heat, this one is <laughs> a little, so is a little well. bit of a woe-begotten, kind of a amiable, lukewarm, tongue-in-cheek kind of gangster comedy. Yeah. Now, Richard Benjamin, an actor turned uh, director, he, as I understand, it was a last-minute replacement uh, as director, and uh, he winds up uh, doing an okay job with uh, Clint and Burt Reynolds. This is back when um, Burt Reynolds was like, you know, a thing. Yeah. This yeah. Is, I mean, it's nineteen eighty-four. This is back I, when Burt Reynolds was kind I of in his heyday. This is when I. This is my first year at UCLA. I was working uh, at the National Theater just down the street from uh, the Bruin, where this opened, and I remember this the uh, the uh, premiere of this thing. I was hanging out there, kind of, you know, in the. In the in the wings with my employee privileges uh, in the same chain, I, I wasn't working. Obviously, it's a different theater, but I remember that premiere so well, and I remember Clint and Bert and all everybody walking in. I still have a button with little LEDs that blink on it and says "City Heat." Blink, 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 blink. blink. I still have that. Well, uh, the, the battery wore out, of course, about you know a few decades ago, but I still have it. Exactly. Well, you know, it's, again, like the other one, it's got a good cast. Irene Cara is a nightclub singer. Madeline Kahn is in this. Uh, vamping it up. There's lots of fight scenes and shootouts, and uh, you know, I, I guess some of th- there's a moment. There are moments in this film where you wonder whether Clint is trying to kind of send up his persona, but uh, there's other moments where you're like, this thing is just not coming together. So I would pass on uh, City Heat. And uh, let me uh, let me hit a couple of these uh, things here. I got some got some really kind of weird culty stuff. So um, I'll go through this fairly quickly. Uh, the City of the Dead with uh, Christopher Lee and Venetia Stevenson is one of those uh, actually one of those early Christopher Lee um, horror things. This is not later kind of uh, Christopher Lee when he's a little older and grayer and more Dracula ish. This is uh, this is earlier. Actually, uh, right about 1960, and uh, it's a it's a witchcraft thing. It's a low budget, uh, you know, witchcraft horror thing, and it's um, it really rides entirely on uh, on Christopher Lee. Frankly, I mean, he's he's leaner and younger, and uh, but still, he's got that voice and he's got that demeanor, and 
he's just one of those guys who dominates the screen. So never mind the fact that you've got this uh, very strange kind of, uh, you know, Salem witch in the present day kind of uh, mystery thriller going on that doesn't really work very well. Uh, it's not very scary, but Christopher Lee is great to watch. And you get a commentary by uh, Bruce Hallenbeck, uh, who's a horror film expert, who talks all about this and uh, the whole British horror thing. Uh, behind-the-scenes interview with uh, Christopher Lee from 2001. Um, you also get the uh, or the uh, original British version with two additional minutes of footage that is not in the American version of this, which was under a different title, Horror Hotel. And then, uh, you know, there's also a Christopher Lee commentary and uh, another interview with Christopher Lee. There's a whole bunch of stuff on here. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's for Christopher Lee fans, bottom line. And then we also have a, a really creepy thing here. This is a four-disc collector's edition of Jorg Butgerite's uh, Sex Murder... My butt goes right. What are you talking about? Y- y- Jorg Butgerite. Jorg Butgerite. This is Sex Murder Art. And uh, this is effectively four... So fi- smart. Sex yes. Murder Art. What this is, is This is a four-disc boxed set... Of four films. Those are, these are the films of Jorg But Butgerite. I don't really know much about Jorg Butgerite, but I know some of his films, which include uh, Necromantic and Necromantic Two, both of which are disgusting. Uh, Der Todesking, which we talked about separately on this show, and Shram, which is a serial killer movie that is absolutely disgusting. And uh, wait, is, is that is that a story about how a football coach Tech Shram was a yeah S C H R A M M yeah exactly that's what it is anyway. These are really nasty movies, and uh, Butgerite, whatever, I guess when, you're, when your last name starts with but, you just, that's where you go for. But anyway, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, these are not fun films, but they do have that really nasty, low-budget uh, slasher horror vibe to them that a lot of people really get into. And, uh, you know, if he's your guy, well, then you got this, uh, this four-disc set from Cult Epics here, which will just completely scratch your itch. Also includes uh, soundtrack CDs and a 40-page booklet, which has all kinds of stuff in it on the Jorg Butgerite. But, uh, it, I mean, it's a nice set. I just don't like these movies. And uh, then the last two here, as long as we are on the uh, cult thing, is uh, from Arrow Video, who keeps doing really interesting stuff and a lot of it exploitation and cult, is Dillinger DVD and Blu-ray combo set. Um, this is the uh, the Sam Arkoff production of uh, Dillinger, which is one of the kind of one of the better um, AIP things from the from the era. Um, you know, obviously not great, but it's it's one of the better films that they did, and it's noteworthy primarily because of who wrote and directed it, and because of who did the music. It was written and directed by one of the most macho, muscular. Badass dudes in Hollywood history, a man who is unapologetically just like Michael Bay withers in his presence. We're talking, of course, about John Milius. He was a, a John Milius. By the way, there's a great documentary about John Milius if you want to. It's on Netflix. Which I haven't seen. I need so to good. Watch, I need to watch that. I'm going to watch that tonight. Thank great. you for reminding me. I, I need to watch that. What's it called? What's the name of it? Um, it's called, uh, I can't think of a joke, but uh, hang on. Yeah. I'll hang on. I'll look for it. A Milius to one. Well, anyway, I will keep uh, keep vamping here. Uh, so it's this called uh, <laughs> Milius. Milius, all right. I've got to check that out. I, I heard great things about that. Anyway, uh, so uh, Warren Oates and Ben Johnson uh, are in this. And, uh, you know, it, 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 this basically came on the heels of Bonnie and Clyde, and it was meant to capitalize on that whole, uh, you know, gangster era, outlaw, 
fascination that was suddenly taking movies over again, and Bonnie and Clyde certainly lit that. But uh, Barry Devorzon did the music, yeah. which is great. And Barry Devorzon, big guy in TV, wrote a lot of great TV themes and TV scores, so heaps and heaps of extras here. Uh, this is based from a uh, 2K restoration of the original negative. Um, you get an audio commentary with Stephen Prince, who does a lot of great commentaries, and this one is really, really good. It's uh, a lot of interesting information in here. Um, a new interview with uh, director of photography Jules Brenner, a new interview with uh, Lawrence Gordon, who produced it uh, when he was in just a young pup. He's a big deal now. And uh, you know what? It's, it's fine. I mean, it's not... Uh, it's, it's, you know, there have been better Dillin- Dillinger documentaries that I would recommend, but uh, this is, if you're going to compare this to, like, the Robert Conrad Dillinger movie, uh, there's, you know, Lady in Red or whatever that was. This is way, way, way better. So, uh, yeah, Early Amelia is definitely worth checking out. Um, and then lastly here is Dangerous Men, the, uh, which <laughs> they actually put this on the... Um, on the cover, and I'm, I'm kind of sort of amazed, you know, they, they put some quotes from, uh, well, there's a quote here from Hit Fix, which is the supreme masterpiece of no rules action film insanity. Fair enough. And then there's a, then there's a tagline, which I find amazing that they put this on the cover. Uh, they put asterisks in there, but uh, it says, the holy grail of holy f ing s and I'll let you fill in the asterisks. This is from um, uh, Draft House Films, and uh, it's uh, it's just pretty pretty badly acted, but unrelenting kind of uh, revenge cop thriller violence. You fill in all the blanks. We've seen this kind of film many many times previously, but this is kind of a this is a whole this is a whole, a whole weird culty um, retro kind of exploitation film quality to it. And, uh, you know, sure, why not? Go for it. It's got heaps and heaps of extras. If you, if you just love that nasty, nasty, bloody grindhouse kind of uh, ultra-violent revenge film, then uh, go and watch Dangerous Men. It'll, it'll totally scratch that itch. There you go, Wade. All right, let's, uh, let's check out the uh, 30th anniversary Steelbook edition of the gay recruitment film Top Gun. <laughs> uh, now, the special features here are exactly the same as they were on the 2013 release, so I do not uh, suggest getting this. However, if you love Steelbooks, which, by the way, I do have a soft spot for Steelbooks. I, I do. I think they're kind of cool. But uh, they're, it's not cool enough, especially with all the same extras. It is not cool enough to uh, upgrade if you already had the one from 2013. Again, these are all. this is all the same. It's two discs. The first disc has the Blu-ray and all the special features, including a commentary by Jerry Bruckheimer and uh, the late Tony Scott. And then the second disc is just the DVD and the special features as well. So anyway, uh, Top Gun, you know what you love it. Also, uh, it, 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 why are they trying to do a sequel to this? Well, I'm surprised Tom Cru- Tom Cruise wants to do it. Well, I, you know, because Tom Cruise does not he, he Tom Cruise does not look like a backward thinking guy to me. He no. feels like he always wants to do the newest, freshest, most modern they, thing. Uh, but the, but this is this is uh, Megan Ellison's brother, David Ellison. He's he's got like a you know his billion dollar inheritance. He wants Tom, he wants to throw it at something, but and Tom he loves this movie. Cruise. Why would Tom do it? I guess he. The, you know what? The Maybe. only thing is the, the the only thing that surprises me is is how. Not only does Tom Cruise keep doing Mission Impossible films, but how good they are. If, <laughs> right? if, if, if you look at that one, series, that the, series is a good series. It's a good series, even though all the set pieces are totally contrived, and, and there's no reason for him so to what? be holding his breath underwater in Morocco uh, with, with, with the computer it's mainframe. Cool. But it makes no sense whatsoever, but it's fun. Sure, yep, yeah. yep, give it up for Mission Impossible. And, and, and how strange is it to remember that the original film 
was directed by Brian De Palma. Sweet, right? It seems like it was 50 years ago. I know. Saw that at the National. You remember that screening, don't you? You were there. Was I there? You were there at the National. Really? Yeah. Everybody went nuts as soon as the lights went down. 1,100 people in the theater, and suddenly, you know, there was that prologue, and right. then... Dun, 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 Oh, my gosh. That music, and that theater, and the fuse, and the whole thing, and the, the images, and everybody went completely bonkers. It was... That was quite a thing. Wait, I'm a huge fan of yeah. uh, the... Um, Warner Archive Collections uh, Forbidden Hollywood series. As you know, the uh, Forbidden Hollywood series is all these pre-code films. The pre-code, of course, started in about uh, 1929, 1930, and it goes from then to when uh, the industry really started to enforce the Motion Picture Production Code in 1934. So between 1929 30 and 34, you got a lot of films that had a lot of sexual innuendo and drug use and uh, even homosexuality and some Pretty intense violence for the time and abortion. Oh, my God, 1929, 1930, they're doing a film about abortion. That's incredible. So some of the stuff was, uh, while it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit funny now, you got to realize what, the film, what films were like back then. And when you're talking about abortion in 1920 and 1931, that was a big deal. Homosexuality, that was a big deal. Prostitution, that was a big deal. And then once the production code started to become uh, enforced, you, the industry got, got away, could no longer get away, get away with any of that stuff. So here we have volume 10. It's a great series. I love all of these. Yeah, I mean, you're... you're I love them all. When you get to volume 10, you're starting to get to, the, not the dregs, but, you know, you're starting to kind of, uh, you know, go to the well one too many times. Uh, we have Guilty Hands, The Mouthpiece, Secrets of the French Police, which was my favorite of these, uh, The Match King, and Ever in My Heart. Um, there's not necessarily anybody that you would necessarily know. I mean, Lionel Barrymore is in Guilty Hands. Um, a couple other people you might uh, recognize, but uh, generally speaking, you're really here for um, the its historical value, the idea that in 1934, the industry was going to pretty much censor itself for almost 50 years. I mean, you know, 34, the production code ended basically, although functionally it had ended a few years earlier. It definitely ended in 1968 when yep. the when the ratings. That uh, was the that was absolutely the end. Yeah, the ratings code made uh, made it obsolete. But. Right, um, but between 1929 and 1934, you got these great films, Forbidden Hollywood. Love them. Also, we have two B movies for you to talk about: uh, Charles Bronson and Assassination. Now, Charles Bronson. This is a golden gold. This is a golden globus film. Now, for a while, Bronson was sort of the in-house action star of Golden and Globus. He was the guy who did all the 17 Death Wish uh, sequels. He would do all this crap for them, and one of the crap films he did was Assassination. Um, this features Jill Ireland. Of course, Charles Bronson and Jill Ireland were romantically involved. Uh, when she died, I was so sad for him. She died very, very young of cancer. That is really true. Really awful. Yes, I know. That, that is definitely agreed. But anyway, this is just typical, you know, late 80s era Charles Bronson. Really cheesy, just big explosions and totally cheeseball stuff. Total Golden Globus. Um, I would definitely pass on it. Also, there's a film that I remember as a kid <laughs> that I just thought this thing was really was really kind of cool <laughs> slash disgusting. They showed this on TV all the time <laughs> when we were growing up. They did, oh, they, they, they did didn't they? All the time, all the time. And it was always it was always just the creepiest thing. Poor Dirk Benedict. It's a movie called... But, but this is why he wound up on Battlestar Galactica and then the A-Team. This is where he broke through. Dirk Benedict. Uh, this was his first big break. Will was, you let me say the name of this go film? Go ahead, say the name of this film. This film is called... 
That is the name of the film. <laughs> it's with Strother Martin and Dirk Benedict. And uh, oh, it's, it's about a snake expert. And he turns he just, into a snake. He turns into a snake. The dude turns into a snake. <laughs> And oh, it's terrible. You know what? It's uh, it was uh, it was part of a whole. This was a whole horror moment. There was a there was a moment when these uh, people turning into things. The flies. Well, this is 1973, so this is and, like an invasion of the bee girls, and you know, there's all there's a whole kind of uh, weird uh, reptilian insect human hybrid moment there in the late 60s and early 70s and it, you know the fly obviously is a lot older but um, executive producer by the way the the, the EPs on this um, uh, Richard Zanuck and David Brown yeah. who of course would go on to have amazing success with Jaws and so forth and so like on like a year later yeah while. <laughs> you know. so they went from <laughs> to Jaws to Jaws yeah which is actually not that incredible of a leap They're, if you, you know, think animal leap whatever <laughs> related Okay, got a couple of uh, really good noirs here. These are Blu-rays, but they are MOD from uh, Flickr Alley. So you want these, you got to go to FlickrAlley.com and you got to order it directly from them. Uh, one of the first one is the best one, uh, "Woman on the Run," which is uh, this fantastic Anne Sheridan, uh, you know, film. Anne Sheridan basically, she's not really a femme fatale in this. She's uh, she's on the run. She's trying to uh, find her husband, and you know, she's a, she's a murder witness, and uh, she's really really good in it. And uh, it's a great great vehicle for her. It's a it's a kind of an overlooked noir. Uh, the other one is a little little you know more kind of uh, it's not as good, but it, from a kitsch standpoint, from kind of a camp standpoint, might be uh, a little better. It's Too Late for Tears. Too Late for Tears has a really juicy performance by Elizabeth Scott, who is this woman who, with her husband, uh, played by Arthur Kennedy, they, uh, they come into possession of some money that they shouldn't be in possession of. And uh, it's, a, it's, a lot of, it's kind of a lot of fun. Both the, that's from 49, and Woman on the Run is from 1950. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, they're, they're just gorgeous. I mean, the, the movies are not brilliant, but they're part of the MOD line. And if you are a fan of the genre, um, then you'll definitely want to get hold of these. Flickr Alley is, you know, bar none. They do great jobs with, uh, with taking old films and working with the Film Noir Foundation and the UCLA Film and Television Archive and really giving these things the, uh, the juicy television treatment. So this is some of the best, uh, some of the best uh, uh, black and white MOD Blu-ray that I have yet seen. It's... Uh, it's better than actually most of the Warner Archive Blu-rays, to be honest. Um, they really, really put some good attention to this. So uh, if, you, if you like the genre, if you like the films, go for it. Wait, there were two films. Yes. And you, you know where I'm going with this, I right? know where you're going with this. There are two films about the uh, late uh, runner, Olympic uh, gold medalist runner, Prefontaine. Yep. One was that called, was the first one. This was the first one. This was yep. directed by Steve James mm-hmm. in 1997. Of course, the guy who gave us uh, Hoop Dreams. And uh, the other one was called Without Limits, and it was directed by Robert Town, who wrote uh, Chinatown. Mm-hmm. I have a story, but I'll let you finish this. You tell, tell us your story. I, I, so, actually, I actually moderately prefer Without Limits. Okay. Without Limits, which starred, um, what's his behoofus? Uh, you know, uh, Billy Crudup. Billy Crudup. <laughs> what's his behoofus? What's his behoofus? I remember that. Okay. Uh, Billy Crudup. So Billy Crudup played Prefontaine in... Uh, in that movie without limits in without limits and uh, this one stars go ahead tell everybody Jared Leto thank you the Joker 
so Jared Leto, of course, at the time, is a much more intense actor. He's already got that weird thing going. And the two performances are completely different. Um, Billy Crudup plays Prefontaine as kind of a really sweet, romantic, but uh, very cocky and arrogant, uh, but, you know, kind of guy. Uh, Jared Leto plays him like a borderline psychopath. He, he's completely disconnected from reality. He just wants to run and just, uh, he, he's just weird and he's like a little, little bit of madness in his eyes. And uh, I don't think the real Steve Prefontaine was, you know, I've seen interviews. He's neither, not like any of them. But um, Jared Leto definitely took it to, to a weirder edge. And there's a, kind of a weird uh, Reds-type quasi-documentary thing going on here with interviews and stuff. Um, I, here's my story. So I saw Prefontaine, and I thought it was really interesting. And then I saw Without Limits, and it felt a lot more conventional. And then I was asked to interview uh, Robert Town for a piece, to you know, do a little sit-down with him. And it was around Christmas time. I remember that because he, you know, Robert Town. I, I went to his house in the Pacific Palisades, and he had the big Christmas tree and the whole thing. And and I, I didn't quite realize what was going on until I talked to the publicist afterwards. And the publicist said, "I don't know why they would do this." Because I told the publicist, I said, "Yeah, I like the film. I think I preferred Prefontaine, though." And he went and he told Robert Town that. And Robert Town was like, "What? God damn it! That movie's a piece of..." Uh, and he, because he, he, I said it just felt more realistic. So, it, without me knowing that the publicist had told Robert Town that, here I am sitting in Robert Town's living room, and he puts, he pulls out a tape and he puts it in the VHS player, and he's showing me the movie and this, the running scenes, and he says, "Now that there, that's the real Steve Prefontaine," and cut, and that's Billy Crudup. And cut, and that's the real Steve Prefontaine, and cut, and that's Billy Crudup. And he's going back and forth, and he's showing me how amazing Billy Crudup is because he was able to intercut between footage of the real Steve Prefontaine and Billy Crudup, and that that's what makes his film better. Wait, why are you in his home? Because I was doing an interview with him. Oh, God. A piece for Entertainment Today. Herb. Herb. This was a Herb yeah. thing. Yeah. You remember Herb. Of course. So anyway, so that was <laughs> because the publicist told, told Robert Town that I, I didn't like his movie, which isn't true. But I think in hindsight, when I look back on it, uh, you know, I think uh, Robert Town scared me into liking uh, Without Limits more. So anyway, I am still fond of Prefontaine. I think it's an underrated film. Uh, but, uh, you know, watch them both. Make up your own mind. Watch them both. Steve James is still a really good director. Hasn't really had the uh, feature fictional career that he deserved. But anyway, there it is. Yes, Mark, carry on. You had another film there? Or shall yes. I go on these? No, you can go on. Well, yeah. here's the thing. We should talk about what. Yes. What, we, should, we should talk about What? 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 Who's on, who's on what? Who's on what? Mm-hmm. Uh, Roman Polanski, 1973, he directed, and it was released, and an, he's X-ra- in, and and he's is in. an X-rated film. Yes. X-rated film yeah. called What? Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing with What? When this thing came out in 1973, this thing got its ass kicked. Yes, Everybody thought this was just, uh, without any redeeming social value whatsoever, <laughs> they thought this thing was just a bizarre piece of crap that just went nowhere f- slow. Yeah. And it really got its butt kicked. And, you know, I'm actually kind of glad, just for historical purposes, if nothing else, that uh, Severin has gone ahead and released this uh, thing on Blu-ray. And, um, you know, Sidney Rome, who plays the... the uh, the American, the American girl, you know, kind of this like wide-eyed American girl who's running around Asia and Europe and gets in all sorts of madcap sexy adventures. Um, they interviewed her. I like that. Interview with the composer. That's always cool. Trailer, that's fine too. So this thing is just, I think with age, I think the film is less uh, body and X-rated than it is just kind of odd. 
but it's a little corner of Polanski's career that no one really remembers, and I like the fact that they have resurrected this film called What? So, uh, yeah, Marcelo Mastriani and uh, Sidney Rome and uh, Hugh Griffith and uh, Polanski himself are in this. So I would definitely, um, if you love Polanski and you're used to Polanski directing only certain sorts of films, you might want to check out What? to see a whole new side of him. Interesting, uh, interesting historical find, and good for them for releasing it. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real real archival thing. So we've got a couple of double features here. Uh, one from the uh, Scream Factory line of uh, Shout Factory. It is Destroyer and Edge of Sanity, a couple of Anthony Perkins films. Uh, Destroyer is, is just ridiculous. It's basically uh, a, a serial killer gets uh, electrocuted in the electric chair and uh, you know, uh, comes Wait, back. We did this last week. Did we? Yes. We, oh, we did, didn't we? we? Did a whole, I did a whole Tony Perkins thing. We were talking That's about right. Tony Perkins you know what? and how... How he was uh, he was really good in the Joan Didion film played as a lays. I forgot we did it last week. Never mind. What I, I see, I Wade, you are getting old. You're losing right. your memory. Well, I was I was gonna say I was gonna say Edge of Sanity. I keep forgetting that he did Edge of Sanity. I mean, it's like that. It's a whole weird anyway. Jekyll and Hyde thing, whatever. So here's the other here's the other uh, double feature. Uh, Blue Underground with the Million Eyes of Sumeru. And The Girl from Rio. This is from Blue Underground, a totally weird double feature of a couple of uh, female-centric, feministic uh, exploitation films that uh, have completely gone under, uh, under the radar. And uh, they deserve to be rediscovered. These are from the late 60s. They are from an era that kind of sits awkwardly between the uh, kind of funky Barbarella exploitation era of the late 60s and then obviously the uh, sex plo- the, uh, the kind of uh, the, the, the black exploitation shift that goes more toward the women in prison films and the, uh, and the, the uh, Pam Greer stuff in the uh, early 70s. So this, these kind of have a foot in, in each in each. Um, the Girl from Rio is much better than uh, The Million Eyes of Sumeru. The Girl from Rio is actually kind of a nice little um, weird Barbarella-esque uh, spy thing. It's, it's, you know, it's got its moments. It's directed by Jess Franco. doesn't feel very Jess Franco-ish, though. It's much better than anything else Jess Franco did, which leads me to think that Jess Franco probably had very, very little to do with it. Um, and then uh, The Million Eyes of Sumeru is uh, noteworthy really only because it has a really, really good cast, which includes Klaus Kinski, uh, Wilfred Hyde-White, who had been in My Fair Lady just a few years earlier, which is just weird, and then uh, Frankie Avalon, of course. So uh, this is you know, essentially another one of those uh, you know, female mega villain hell-bent on world domination. We've got a lot of those, right? They were all over the place. Anyway, uh, both of these look really good, and they're culty, and they're cool, and they're fun, and, uh, you know, obviously Sumeru not as good as uh, The Girl from Rio, but if you like the whole Barbarella vibe, you'll probably love it. And then before we get into uh, new movies, and we got some kind of a weird whole new movie thing this week. It's an interesting collection of things, but we have three from the uh, 20th Century Fox Cinema Archives. These are all MOD on uh, DVD-R. And uh, they're worth checking out. None of them are great, but they're all, they all kind of have you know, neat little kitsch uh, pedigree to them. Sierra Baron is a, uh, is a Western with Brian Keith and uh, Rick Jason. Both of them really good actors. I've often sung the praises of Rick Jason, who was uh, in Day of the Wolves, one of my all-time favorite uh, films from the, uh, the early 70s, and then, uh, of course, was part of the uh, combat team on television. And then Dan Daly and Ann Baxter in You're My Everything, wonderful little uh, Technicolor uh, musical. 
Um, that's you know that's uh, not, again not a great film, but directed by, by Walter Lang, who was a, he did a lot of good programmers from the day. And um, then we've got uh, Will Rogers in Too Busy to Work um, with Dick Powell, and uh, this is actually probably the, the the most interesting film of the whole lot because it basically uh, finds humor in the depression, which is something that only somebody like Will Rogers could do. Will Rogers was freaking amazing uh just a, an american treasure and people forget what a great humorist he was but also how good he was in movies and um it's unless you have a really working knowledge of the depression you don't quite understand what a great trick this was but it you know again not a genius film but uh really one of the more interesting will rogers films from the day so uh all really good stuff it's funny with will rogers he was such a wit that you you really wonder why there's not been any sort of reappreciation of him yeah because i mean he was like the daily show of his day Oh, that's really true. That's I mean, a good he analogy. was a political wit. Yeah, he was like a little like Mark Twain. Yeah, but uh, the, uh, and obviously his life his life ended way too short, yeah. way too tragically. But still, Will Rogers, I think that guy deserves a reappreciation. He's I just absolutely, I just love Will Rogers. I agree. Agree completely. All right, new movies. Um, yes. Let's uh, let's see here. You know, I'll make a quick mention of this. Uh, let me just get this one out of the way before we we, we we'll talk about joy in a moment. Um, so Emily. The babysitter is here. Emily is a low budget, but I wanted to hate this movie, but I found myself kind of begrudgingly admiring it because the performance, the lead performance is actually really, really good. Um, so Emily is basically the hand that rocks the cradle done on a shoestring budget. That's pretty much what it is. Uh, there's just no way around it. Uh, the, um, the lead actress is Sarah Bolger, who plays a babysitter that seems to be just wonderful and she sits down this this couple they you know they they've had her uh, to, she's coming over to take care of the kids and they're going to go out for an evening and of course it turns out that she is not what they expected when they hired the babysitter i won't give you any of the other twists and turns but uh it gets really really creepy and um it's so clearly a hand that knocks the cradle uh, knockoff but yet sarah bolger is so good uh, that you're willing to kind of forgive it. And the direction is pretty solid. They didn't have a lot of money to make this, but the direction's pretty solid. It's got some chills and thrills and suspenseful moments. So uh, even though there's really no reason why this should not just be absolutely pilloried as a complete and total uh, ripoff, they hired the right actress. So it's called Emily, E-M-E-L-I-E. If you like Hand the Rocks the Cradle, you'll probably like this. Wade, um, you know, we are, used to be, big fans of Adam McGoyan. And uh, what he, the he, hell he, happened? He has been in the wilderness for a oh long my time. Gosh. But I've got to say, uh, I guess you know, I can I can imagine a film like Remember, which features Christopher Plummer and Martin Landau, great twosome. Uh, I can those, imagine those two this, actors so deserve a better movie. You know, I didn't mind this movie. I think as much as you did, maybe because I'm of the Jewish persuasion, because it's about these two uh, elderly uh, guys, or they're they're living out their last days, and they realize that the um, one of the, the sadistic guard who killed their family in Auschwitz, you know, 50 years earlier, has emigrated to the U.S. and is now living there under an assumed identity. Yeah. So they find this out, and they're going to grab a gun and get their revenge. So. Uh, you know, it sounds like a real potboiler. It sounds like something that Adam McGoin is just going to have to bring all of his intellectual might to just make this thing even remotely interesting. And, you know, yes, it's a little bit... Some of the plot beats are convenient, and, uh, you know, it's a little gimmicky, but I have to say that I love Christopher Plummer. This guy is going to win himself like a like a, 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 a 
uh, Lifetime Achievement Oscar or something. Yeah. He's great. And he's Martin Landau, who hasn't worked as much as he used to in the last like 10, 15 years, always great to see him. He's still terrific. And this thing is probably not as bad as I was expecting. So I, I do have to. It's very, you know, there, there's some poignant stuff in it about, about growing old. But doesn't it feel like Adam McGoyan had a moment from the adjuster up through Felicia's journey? Including, you know, sweet hereafter, kind of peaked with the sweet hereafter, and you know, you also had stuff like like Exotica. I mean, it was a great period there, and then he just completely lost his mojo. And next thing, you, next thing you know, you've got, uh, uh, you know, Kevin Bacon and oh, uh, when the truth oh lies, my gosh, I think it was terrible, just dreadful. It's just appalling stuff. I don't. Now I'm not sure whether whether this is the only type of script he can get his hands on that he can actually get himself attached to. That maybe that's why no, he did it. But I'm no. saying that in the hands of another director, remember would have been an even worse film. Yeah, you need somebody like a Goyne who's got at least some depth and and, and intellectual heft just, to him to make this thing to really mine the the moral quandaries of the film. You need somebody who can do that. I think he's just forgotten what he does well. I just I think he's forgotten what he does well. Uh, you know, it's okay. Uh, is submerged. Uh, kind of a gimmicky plot, but uh, it's, it, it's well directed, so you can forgive an awful lot here. Um, anyway, the uh, the whole concept here is you got a uh, a limousine that uh, like goes off the road and into the water, and there's a whole kidnapping thing in here, and uh, you know there's a, basically the whole thing is just designed to do some underwater set piecey stuff. And uh, it really, honestly, the, the plot does not work. I've, I've ignored like half a dozen plot twists that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. But it's okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's nicely put together. The director, Stephen Miller, uh, will, will get good work out of this. He'll, he shows some chops here. And uh, really, that's all this is designed to do is just to basically show some uh, it's a bit of a showreel. So it's a resume piece. And he does a good job. So... Uh, you know, you're looking for some familiar faces. There's a few of them in here, including Mario Van Peebles, who I thought had completely gone off, off, uh, off world, off colony. Uh, yeah, so uh, check it out. It's uh, you know, it's it's well done. It's a nice little pass. It's good for a rental. You know, pass a pass a couple of hours. Wait, all you Donald Trump fans may want to check out Hostile Border because it's about a uh, young woman who is uh, who builds un- a wall. Un- exactly. <laughs> Who's an undocumented immigrant uh, living uh, in America? Then she gets arrested for credit card fraud and gets deported back to Mexico. And then all the Trump fans applauded in approval. Anyway, so that's where it all begins. And her father gets involved in it, and then this dangerous smuggler gets involved in it, and so it becomes kind of like a crime thriller. It's actually not that bad. The... um, it was written by this woman, Caitlin uh, McLaughlin. I think it's her first writing credit. And yeah. you know what? Uh, you got to give her credit for at least trying to give us some incisive dialogue, keep the you know keep the keep the people front and center, and not just like the crime stuff. So I got you, you kind of have to you know give her some props for that. So you know, there's a lot of character building in there, a lot of interest, a lot of good action stuff. Not a great film, you know. It doesn't really star anybody who you would necessarily want to uh, make a make a point to uh, rent. Um, so, but still, uh, Hostile Border, not bad. We'll see what happens with director Michael Dwyer. Um, see if he goes anywhere. But uh, yeah, Hostile uh, Border, a little bit of a surprise. So we got a couple movies here. I, I we always talk. We're one thing we always enjoy on the show is movies that have that that uh, go for the same marketing, the same plot, the same artwork. And I find this fascinating. Look, look at this, Mark. How about that? That's almost like you could put those two covers together, and it's like one big panorama, right? They're almost exa- identical artwork. Tell me, I'm not. I'm. I'm not it it does look like the same 
one sheet. The same like photo you, sheet. You, you put them together, it could yeah. just make, it could make an actual one, yeah. one sheet. So these are, these are two Afghan uh, got, you know, military mission, guys on a mission in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban movies. Uh, one is Hyena Road. The other one is Sniper, Special Ops, as long as we're talking about snipers. Uh, you, know, you think Bradley Cooper was a sniper? No, I'll tell you who's a sniper. Steven Seagal and Van Damme. Uh, I, I can't believe that. Uh, look, Seagal, I, I have a friend who used to work for Seagal. Uh-huh. And that guy, he just goes to whatever crazy country or Russian whatever oligarch will give him his rate and yeah. makes 10 movies a year where he, he is lazy and does not want to do anything other than well, just sit and read dialogue. I just want to show you again. This says Seagal and Van Damme. And people read this and they're like, really? Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme? No, 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 no. Van Damme, D-A-M. Rob Van Damme. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? Good job. If I was, was Jean-Claude Van Damme, I'd be pissed uh, off. Of course, absolutely. Interesting. Uh, so that's what's going on here. Rob Van Damme building a career by basically ripping off a guy's name. I have no idea who Rob Van Damme is. But anyway... Well, uh, okay. Who is Rob Van Dam? A guy starring in Steven Seagal films. That's yeah, who he exactly. is. exactly. What does that tell you? So anyway, the idea here is really kind of silly. Uh, basically, the, this Van Dam guy who's a nobody, he and Steven Seagal are, uh, are a couple of guys who get uh, shafted by this uh, mission to rescue a U.S. Uh, uh, congressman who's been kidnapped by the Taliban, and now it's like, you know... Behind enemy lines becomes one of those things. Uh, it's it's cheesy and Seagal is not. This friend of mine had this funny story about about uh, Seagal shooting one of his cop procedural movies. He said there was a scene where Seagal. It, it took place in the precinct, and Seagal had to walk across the room, right, and yeah. deliver his dialogue to his police captain. Uh-huh. And so Seagal, who's so fat and old and lazy now, he literally says, "Can I just sit in this chair and do it?" <laughs> I I, I, I I believe my character would just sit in this chair and deliver his dialogue. That's great. He was basically so lazy, he didn't want to do like, like he didn't want That's to do fantastic. six takes walking across a room. That's fantastic. Well, Hyena Road is a much better movie. That doesn't mean it's good. It's just better. It's uh, This is a Canadian independent film, which is uh, allegedly based on a real story, which is about a bunch of guys, a uh, platoon of guys in Afghanistan who are um, looking for a, an Afghan freedom fighter known as the Ghost. And, you know, it, 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 it's better because it focuses a little bit more on character. It's a little bit less pyrotechnic, but it's still not that great. I mean, it's strictly for people that just can't get enough guys, uh, guys in a platoon on a mission in Afghanistan movies. So, um, you know, load up those two movies and knock yourself out. Uh, before we talk about the big release of the week, let's just say that Dominic Swain and Tracy Lords are in a film. Shark and Saw Women's Prison Massacre. Ooh. What, would you, do you want to hear about this? Yeah, story? go ahead. Knock Why? it out. It's about, it's, it's called Shark and Saw Women's Prison Massacre. Mm-hmm. It stars Dominic Swain and Tracy Lords. Sharknado in Shark and Saw. What, what else? Crossover, huh? Yes, and it's all about, it, it, the whole thing takes place thanks to a fracking mishap. Oy. And, uh, come on, guys, you're a sauce. Come on. A fracking mishap. We talk about okay. Let's 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 talk about movies people care about. Okay, fine. Uh, let's talk. Let's let's talk about Joy. Let's do it. Hit 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 up Joy. Uh, Joy is uh, Joy. Let's just uh, cut right to the chase. This movie's a mess. Yeah, I thought this movie was a mess. <laughs> it's a I, fun mess. It is not a fun mess at it all. Is a fun it mess. is a mess. Mess. I just think that uh, David O. Russell, you know. Sometimes the guy's got the magic, and you just feel like whatever the magic he has, whatever pixie dust he sprinkles over his films, it was just not there. I, I, I felt I was in trouble the moment the thing started with, 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 a, with a voiceover. 
right? The moment movies start with voiceovers, already you're getting scared. Mm-hmm. You know, don't yep. do that. There's got to be a better way to start your film. And Jennifer Lawrence, who was only nominated for an Oscar because people just want to see how she reacts and see if she'll trip over something on the way to the podium. That's all they want to see. She is terrific. Who doesn't love Jennifer Lawrence? But, you know, I, I just think that this thing was just a god-awful mess. Of course, it's about the uh, woman who, direct, who directed, who created the, uh, the, the mop there, Miracle Mop. And uh, it's, got, it's got David Russell. David Russell's, you know, he, it's got his, uh, his company players. Uh, De Niro's in it. Bradley Cooper's in it. Um, but in the end, I just think this thing was aimless and misguided, and I just didn't think... The, the, you know, the, brief, the thing comes alive briefly when Bradley Cooper shows up. See, I, I, I can watch anything with uh, the two of them, including that, uh, that, that horrible, dreadful, uh, misbegotten thing that they did for uh, Suzanne Beer. I know the thing that sat on the shelf for a while, yeah, yeah and, for uh, like two years, yeah. which is a mess of a movie. But somehow, I just watch Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, and I just enjoy watching the two of them together. I just they have that chemistry. I could watch it forever. Um, but you know, I enjoyed this movie. It is not good. I know it's a mess. I know it's all over the map. But come on, all that stuff where you know Robert De Niro comes back and moves into the basement with her ex husband, and you know, mom won't get out of bed. Come on, it's funny. It's wacky. It's crazy. It's a dysfunctional family. They can't get their act together. I love it. <laughs> it's just terrible. That movie sucked. It's fun. It's fun. I mean, yes, it's about a lady who invented a mop. I don't know why. Well, you know, but here's the thing. I don't mind making a movie about a woman who invented a mop. She might have had an interesting life, or sure. interesting challenges. That's fine. Yeah. But with with Russell, you feel you just feel the movie as this. You feel the movie is not coming together. I you I feel hear it that. is it is not telling the story in the way he wants it to be told. I hear that. I you know hear what I mean? That. I just think that yes, a couple of the performances they work fine. You know, moment to moment. You know, who doesn't love seeing that, that those guys? But I just feel like its quirkiness is very mannered and it's just all over the place. And even she's a bit of a one dimensional cartoon. You know, the way she faces down that guy at the end who wants yeah. to rip her I off, you. you know, it's just very disappointing. I just feel like uh, David Russell's got to, he, he's got to sit, he's got to take a, take a step back, right? Mm-hmm. Get a sense of what it is he does well, what he does not do well. Okay. And then just move forward from there. That's fine. I, I, I'm not going to argue, but I still enjoyed it. So uh, let's blow through some documentaries real quick just to uh, wrap the show out. Um, this is a really interesting documentary from the, uh, the guy who did Darwin's Nightmare. Um, and this is his new film. Uh, the director is Hubert Sauper, or Sauper. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name, but Hubert Sauper. Uh, the Darwin's Nightmare, and now he does his We Come as Friends, which is really kind of fascinating. It's, uh, it revisits modern-day Sudan uh, as it is kind of coming apart geopolitically, and uh, it looks at what that really entails and uh, how the, the, the world sort of dives into this, uh, this, this country like, you know, like, like, like vultures and scavengers to sort of tear it apart and refashion it and exploit it. And uh, it is really, really intriguing. It, uh, it gives you a completely different perspective on the uh, first world and the third world and the way that geopolitics operates, especially on the continent of Africa. Really an interesting movie. Um, also excellent, What Our Fathers Did, A Nazi Legacy. This is a very personal film by David Evans. This is released by Oscilloscope. And um, it's, uh, this is, I, I'm, I'm not sure I relate to this film quite the same way, but I did find it interesting. Um, essentially, what it, it uh, looks the relationship between uh, two men who are both the children of Nazi officials, but who have uh, very, very different perspectives on, the, um, on their own family history. And um, it, is, it is quite compelling, and it asks a lot of very difficult questions. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just sort of looking at Nazism from the outside as a, as a facet of history, but it's looking at it 
through the perspective of people who have a familial relationship to it and who feel a certain degree of guilt and responsibility inherited for it. And um, it, the, the way the documentary is put together is, is quite interesting. Um, you know, again, anyone who's listened to the show for any period of time knows that my mother, of course, was a, was a young girl uh, born in Germany and was a war refugee at the time. So I grew up hearing firsthand stories of Hitler and life under Hitler pretty uh, unrelentingly. And uh, I find it interesting whenever I hear someone else who has kind of a different relationship to the air and a different experience. So, I, um, again, I, I couldn't necessarily ex- access the emotions in this thing, but I do find it a, a compelling film to watch. And then um, I Don't Belong Anywhere. We talked last week about uh, Chantal Ackerman, that guest of ours. What was his name? Hubert Mashivinitz. What was his name? You know, it really, I I could not remember his name (laughs) at the time, let alone a week later. Well, anyway, this is a documentary by uh, Marianne Lambert, which is a wonderful companion film to that, uh, which really basically is a, a clinic on, a primer on why Chantal Ackerman matters. And, uh, you know, Chantal Ackerman made over 40 movies. And uh, most of them are amazing, and uh, many of them are intensely experimental and daring and brave. And um, this is uh, this is a, a very personal moment that Chantal Ackerman shared with Marianne Lambert uh, before she passed away. Obviously, to sort of go into the film, and um, it's it's uh, it, it, into her body of work, and sort of you know dissect it and give some some insights and some illumination. It is. Uh, it's. It's wonderful. It's really, really, really wonderful, and it's not nearly long enough. It's just barely over an hour, and uh, I could have watched this thing for two hours. I mean, it's like so many movies aren't even covered here. It's like you which know, is you why have, would you watch it twice? You have a. You have a thank, well, there you go. See? I mean, you have a body of work as large as Chantal Ackerman's. You really want something that sort of spends some time on it. I mean, that Woody Allen doc is over two hours. You know, the Mel Brooks doc is like almost two hours. I mean, it, you, you sort of a body a body of work like this. I wanted more, but that being said, it is still really good and it'll make you want to see all of her movies. Well, I'm a big blues fan, and so I was very uh, happy to uh, discover this uh, Blu-ray documentary called Pride and Joy. Now, uh, in the early 70s, a guy named uh, Bruce Iglauer founded uh, this blues label called Alligator Records. And this is... Ah, uh, jeez. Yeah, I knocked it over. Yeah, anyway, so uh, all these great blues artists from, uh, from Chicago and all over the country... Uh, he found all these great singers, these great guitarists. I really enjoyed this thing a lot. The 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 uh, Blu-ray Pride and Joy is really just kind of like uh, kind of like the highlights from one of the concerts where they brought together all these alligator artists. They they would put on these huge concerts, like four hours, more, four hours or more, and they would just play. This one was at Philadelphia's Chestnut Cabaret, and um, it's great. Not only do you hear great music, a lot of these guys I was not that familiar with uh kate webster lonnie blues coco taylor and her blues machine you know these are a couple of the folks that i really was not that familiar with that the movie introduced me to but also you get a sense of of how uh iglauer founded the company how he was able to uh succeed in business where a lot of people around him were failing and it's great i think it's just terrific so this thing is called pride and joy the story of alligator records Uh, also we have on blu-ray racing extinction this thing is about how uh when i when I first heard this, I thought to myself, you know, this Blu-ray is going to try to convince me that because of, you know, the horrible oil companies and the horrible gas companies and the horrible corporations, you know, half of the species on Earth will be extinct within, like, uh, within our lifetime. A week. And you're like, oh, that's – come on. Yeah. Stop that, people. But then when, when it's done, you're like, oh, my God. Half, <laughs> of the, half of the species will be extinct in a week. 
This is, it. you know, we uh, we talked a little bit on uh, Film Week about a new IMAX film, which gets a little bit into that as well. But yeah, it, there's a, it's, it, yeah, it's like the uh, there was some some study some years ago that said we are rapidly reaching a level where. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, species are going to start becoming extinct like every week, and eco—it's just like a—it becomes like a domino effect. And I, you know, it's uh, it. it uh, what I was thinking was, you know, what—that's pretty great because it'll it'll more room for us. That's what I think. That's what I felt like. Yeah. So uh, you know, it, uh, our friend William. Yeah. Remember, he used to have a thing where he <laughs> wishes he could. He was a guy who wanted to literally pave the earth. Like, okay. he wanted so, the earth to be all concrete. Okay, so just before I get into the, fi- the final few, few titles here. Yes, William loves concrete. This is someone I went to kindergarten with. This is, this is, he's a computer guy, a very successful programmer. So I went to kindergarten with him. He's quite a brain. And when he bought his first house, um, it was in a gated community which he's going he's gonna to kill me for telling this story, but it was in a gated community where they had landscaping standards, as they all do. We want a certain, you know, certain amount of greenery and, and, and flowers and grass, and, you know, we, want, we don't want to look like a great big, you know, cinder block campus. Of course, William hates plants because they have to be cared for. They have to be watered. Uh, it's maintenance that he doesn't want to have to do. He doesn't want to have to pay a gardener. He doesn't want somebody coming, you know. He just And basically, he wants a badminton court in his backyard. That's all he wants to do. He doesn't want to lie out in, on grass. He doesn't want to have flowers. He doesn't want to grow anything. He just wants to play badminton on the concrete. So, and he's good at badminton, by the way. It's like he could, he could wipe out Olympic players. It's kind of scary. Uh, so, anyway, um, he submitted plans to his homeowners association, of which he was treasurer, only so he could have the inside track, and he submitted plans over and over and over. And every single one came back, please show more plantings. Please show more plantings. Please show more plantings. So he went from like 90, 98% concrete down to like 45% concrete when they finally approved it. And then he went and he went with the first plan anyway. And then when they, when they complained, he said, oh, I, was just, I submitted so many plans. I lost track of which one you approved. <laughs> Sorry. And there was nothing they could do. What are they going to do? Make him tear it up? So he, he wound up winning anyway. It's a, it's a stray. I mean, I remember that whole. I don't know why I'm even telling that story, but yes, anyway, concrete. Yes. And we <laughs> Pave we the used, world. We used to go to his place and play Bomberman. He, he had that oh, couch. Bomberman. He had that couch that sat like eight people. It was oh. so long, it sat like seven or eight people. Yeah. And he, and he had, he projected his TV screen on his wall. Yeah. And this was like 10, 15 years yeah. ago. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty expensive yeah. and exotic to have a TV that projected on the wall. And, and, and we would play Bomberman. Yeah. Five people sit there. And in fact, was I, was with, I was with him at the Claim Jumper restaurant when I found out that I'd been accepted to LAFCA. Oh, there you go. Because it was the voting meeting. Uh-huh. And you were at the voting meeting. Yes. And, of course, I could not be there. And I texted you. And I texted so you I, your acceptance. So I was with William and, yeah. the, and a couple of, of our other buddies at, the, at a Claim Jumper restaurant in wherever the hell town it was in. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I was sitting at the Claim Jumper restaurant and you texted me and you said you're in. There you go. All right. Well, the last couple kind of go along uh, what we were just talking about. In Defense of Food, an Eater's Manifesto. This is a uh, Blu-ray from PBS, and it is based on the book In Defense of Food. And, uh, the, the, you know, this is, again, it's kind of into that whole sustainability deal. And uh, essentially the whole issue is what will, what will enable us to eat and be healthy and not completely deplete everything that the planet has to offer us. And uh, it's interesting. It kind of covers the whole world, and it goes into uh, you know, all kinds of different lifestyles, religious and otherwise, and what people eat and what they don't eat and what is and isn't nutritious and what is and isn't organic.
like, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a little bit exhaustive, but it's very informative, and it'll, you'll certainly come out of it feeling hungry, I think. Uh, and then the last one, uh, Earth's Natural Wonders, Living on the Edge. This is from BBC Earth, also released on PBS on beautiful Blu-ray. And this is uh, less apocalyptic. This is simply a wonderful journey through uh, a lot of the wonderful parts of the Earth. Um, a bit of a travel log in that classic BBC PBS style. And it's very, it's very rewarding. It's three hours long, never even feels remotely that long. Beautiful. You just see animals and, and great sights and mountains and blue seas. And uh, it is lovely. Uh, the Amazon never looked so gorgeous, even though you know that they're like 19-foot-long crickets that are just waiting to eat you somewhere underneath the water. So uh, Earth's Natural Wonders, Living on the Edge, really, really pretty great. Kind of amazing. So just, and the people who live in some of these places... It's amazing. Why don't they move? Don't you ever wonder that? No, you do. Like you, like you live in the mo- in the coldest or the hottest or the most far out there place on the planet, and uh, you can't really do anything or get anywhere. You can't get cell reception. There's no cable. There's no satellite. You just you got some camels and some yaks. Can't, move, man. I. If ever there were a reason to go find a new place, I need to live in the middle of things. I cannot live in the country. I can't live on a farm. I need to live in a big city mm-hmm. in the middle of stuff. Yep, I hear you. You, you, and, uh, you and Ava Gabor on uh, Green Acres. There you go. That's what it is. All right. Uh, we are done, and we will see you guys next week. <laughs>